0: I was born on Wurundjeri Country, the ancestral land of the Wurundjeri people, who are the traditional custodians of a section of Melbourne. And I've returned to Wurundjeri Country to record this episode. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and honour their enduring connection to this country, which they have been looking after for thousands of years. Welcome to Weekend Birder Podcast and happy 50th episode anniversary. (laughs) I'm your host, Kirsty Costa, and somehow I managed to create this podcast whilst working full time. And I'm so grateful for your support. Thanks for being here. We are celebrating this important milestone by saying hello to our old friend, Georgia Angus, scientist, author, and illustrator. Georgia Angus shared her advice about the basics of birdwatching back in Episode 3. She's such a great human, and today she's going to tell us about some cool birds found around the world. Here is what Georgia's been up to since we last heard from her.
1: The last we spoke, we were talking about my first book, 100 Australian Birds, and since then I've worked on a guide to Australian insects, which was a really fun project, very much in the same vein as 100 Australian Birds. And then more recently, I've had a book come out called Birds with Personality, and that's a look at 50 different species from around the world. So it's just been the loveliest project to work on. So much fun. It was really good timing because as I was putting together Birds with Personality, I was lucky enough to go up to Cairns and I went up to the Atherton Tablelands and I was lucky enough to see a Victoria's Rifle Bird. It was one of the birds I was writing about for birds with personality. And so I just was in awe completely. We'd heard this, the rifle like call that they make through the trees. And we knew it was somewhere in the valley where we were bird watching. And we just thought we can't, we've got to stay here until we see this bird. So we spent a fair while, probably 45 minutes of just kind of ch- chasing the noise around. And then finally this male rifle bird emerged and just was so beautiful You could see in the sunlight his kind of, you know, like mother of pearl chest feathers. And he just kind of zoomed around, ate some fruit and then disappeared. And yeah, it was just so, so special.
0: The Victoria's Riflebird lives in the rainforests of northern Australia, especially near Cairns in the Atherton Tablelands where Georgia was walking. The male is famous for its courtship display. It perches on a prominent branch, spreads out its glossy black and blue wings high above its head, and then it moves its head and body in different patterns, kind of like a dance. I highly recommend you jump online and watch some of the videos. They are mind-blowing. Birds like the Victoria's Rifle bird that inspired Georgia to write her new book, Birds with Personality. Hardy Grant reached out a
1: little while ago and just proposed the idea of doing an international book of kind of curious bird species that are really vibrant in terms of the way that they look and colour, but also vibrant in terms of personality and sort of really bold, you know, charismatic birds to try and get people engaged with the natural world. And I just loved that as a concept and also the thought of being able to illustrate these amazing international bird species. Said yesterday, just started to write the hugest long list of birds that can potentially be the 50 included in the book. So that was a really lengthy process and I was doing a lot of reading, sort of trying to narrow it down to try and get birds represented from across the globe every continent but also trying to get the major bird families represented as well and getting you know both dryland and rainforest and desert and ocean species and migrating species and species that just um, stay in the one area so it was that was probably actually the most challenging part was trying to not be too biased about Australian birds and trying to get um, some really good diversity represented um, in the book so yeah, I had a long list and winnowed it down to a short list. I think for me, the concept was very much from the start was 50 birds with personality. It's odd to think about birds having personalities in some ways, but I think it's really true. And I think as bird watchers, people often focus on the character of birds because it is reflected in the way that birds move and their behaviors. And so I sort of was stretching the concept of personality a little bit to try and think how can we choose birds that are reflections of their ecosystem? And it's kind of embodied in their character, the way that they move, the way that the noises that they make, the songs, um, the way they interact with fellow birds um, and the environment. So, really, the way that I narrowed down to 50 species was to try and choose interesting birds, but also birds that have a kind of ripple effect in the ecosystem really that's my passion is trying to get people to look at birds not just as an individual beautiful thing but really the
0: tip of the iceberg for an ecosystem. Another Australian bird that came to Georgia's mind when she was writing her new book was the superb lyrebird. We learned about this incredible bird in episode 16 with Alex Maisie. They live in the rainforests of the southeast of the Australian mainland and southern Tasmania. It's not just about the fact that these are birds with
1: so much character! They're incredible impersonators. They dance. The females are incredible defenders of their nests, as you, as we've learned from Vicky, from her amazing research on female birds. You know, they're staunch defenders of their nests in really clever ways with mimicry. But also, you know, Alex Macy's work has revealed that superb blybirds are real ecosystem engineers, and they turn over masses of soil and they really promote biodiversity and health of the forest. We can. I appreciate birds on so many levels, so I really like to take both the really granular details of why a bird is beautiful, but also to step back and go, oh, actually, you know, when a live bird is in a forest, it impacts so many other species in the area. So as much as I could, I was trying to choose species like that that would have bigger impacts in their ecosystem, you know, big, bold personalities, not just, you know, in their charisma, but the way that they engage with their ecosystem.
0: Georgia enjoyed being able to research birds with personalities who live in other countries. And one that sparked her imagination was a woodpecker whose home is in North America.
1: I absolutely loved researching woodpeckers because they are very exotic to me. Like we don't really have anything like it in Australia. And I chose the pileated woodpecker because they're a keystone species in their ecosystem. So these are really big, beautiful woodpeckers. So the pileated woodpeckers are about 45 centimetres long from tip of their beak to their tail. Um, So for reference, that's about... A little bit bigger than um, a large Australian magpie, for size reference. They're mostly black and they've got some white stripes um, on their chin and cheek. They've got a large, bright red crest. So they're, they're very striking to look at because they are such big birds and they're often seen perched vertically on tree trunks. And you'd see them through a lot of North America, up into Canada. So they're a really iconic forest species in those areas you know, their ritual is every year when it comes to breeding season, they'll drill a hole in a hardwood tree and that hollow becomes their nesting cavity. They generally line it with some wood chips and then they um, have a clutch, usually about three or four baby woodpeckers. And once they fledge, all the birds leave the nest and this hollow is sort of left behind. And so I was entranced by this idea that, you know, every year these birds go and drill a cavity and then it's left and then fellow forest species will then go and make use of that hollow so you might have owl or duck species go and use that hollow to nest in the next season and so you sort of have this interesting push pull where the palliated woodpeckers are producing the nesting hollows and I guess ideally they would like to not have to drill a nest hole nesting hole every season but because of the forest demand they're kind of driven to do that and so it's sort of this interesting escalating um, relationship where they're sort of inherent behaviours and have these really big ripple effects for other species in the forest. I just think they're the most amazing birds and they've also got so much stuff that I couldn't fit in the book because they're only short paragraphs in the book, but they have all of this amazing anatomy to cope with the stresses of drilling into the hardwood trees. Like they have this extended sort of elongated tongue which wraps around their brain so that as they sort of slam their head into the trunk that their brain isn't damaged. And I found out researching that the engineers that produced the black box, you know, that they put in airplanes, this sort of indestructible box, um, was actually partially based on the design of the woodpecker elongated tongue defense mechanism from the drilling. So I just think that's so astounding and, um, and wild. So, yeah, I just think they're the most beautiful birds, very strange and wonderful to me.
0: That recording of the Palliated Woodpecker was by Jim Berry in New York State in the USA. While we're talking about birds in the Northern Hemisphere, Georgia was also fascinated by a species called the Eurasian Jay. The Eurasian Jay, as you can probably guess from their name, is found across Europe
1: into Asia, and it's even found in a small area in Northern Africa. And they're relatively plain looking birds. they largely grey with a bit of brown markings and they've got a beautiful brilliant blue wing patch and they're a bit bigger than an Australian shrike thrush. They're really interesting birds because they hoard food in preparation for the winter so one of their favourite preferred foods. They're omnivorous so they're kind of opportunistic about what they're going to eat but one of their favourite things to have is acorns and beech nuts. When it's coming up to the colder seasons and they know that food isn't going to be as available they generally will collect a lot of acorns and beech nuts and they actually go and find all of these little spots in the soil under other trees and open areas um all these nooks and crannies where they actually bury those acorns and beech nuts as sort of a insurance policy for the winter when they're not going to have as much food i mean that in itself is so ingenious amazing that they have the self-awareness to actually prep for those hardships ahead The other wonderful effect of this food caching is that a lot of those acorns go forgotten over the next season or unused. And then, of course, if you've buried an acorn in lovely soil, that's a perfect spot for an oak tree to grow. So a lot of those acorns will then develop into trees, which then provide habitat for a lot of other species from the area. So, you know, it's just another example of just how much impact birds with so much mobility have on such a large area and so many other species by result. So I just loved reading about this little humble bird that would go and, you know, industriously bury all of these seeds everywhere and then just basically reforest as they go along. So that's
0: the Eurasian jay. I I'm really loving hearing about how birds help the habitat around them and support other species and plants. Another example of this is a cassowary. There are three species of cassowary in the world the northern and dwarf cassowary that live in Papua New Guinea and the southern cassowary, which is the cassowary that you might see in Australia. I imagine that most people know what these birds look like because they're so striking,
1: but for those of you that don't, these are immense birds that are found in northern Australia and on the island of New Guinea. They stand about 160 centimetres tall, so as you can imagine, you're probably most of us are at about eye level with a cassowary when they're at full height, which is pretty wild. They've got an emu-like sort of body, but they're a little bit more robust, I would say, a bit darker. And they've got a very vivid blue neck and head and a little red wattle, the name we use for this kind of little sort of pouch of excess skin like a turkey would have on their neck. Um, And they also have what's called a cask, which is like a a large, almost like a fin on top of their head. So they truly look like direct descendants of the dinosaurs, which I guess distantly they are. But there's something so ancient looking about cassowaries; It's just amazing. I wanted to include them in the book because, you know, they have public perception of being quite aggressive, which I think partially might be a result of human interactions with cassowaries. There's a fair bit of feeding that goes on, which is, I can understand uh, the temptation to do that because cassowaries are quite rare and they're endangered. So I think people are really passionate about trying to support them in whatever way that they can. But I do think if you've got an expectation of food or feeding set up, then any animal is going to become aggressive when that sort of resource isn't available to them when they've come to expect it. So there's sort of the public perception of cassowary as being quite aggressive. But I think in the wild, these enormous birds are actually quite gentle most of the time and quite shy. Their mode of living is generally to wander around large tracts of the daintree rainforest, eating rainforest fruit, which is just such a lovely way to live. The further impact of their diet and the way that they kind of migrate through the forest is that they are dropping fruit seed everywhere that they go and so kind of like the rainforest version of the eurasian jay here in australia the southern cassowary has a really enormous impact in reforestation and i think it's cool to reflect on birds like this that have such a large impact through very small individual actions the small sort of daily activities of these birds feeding and walking and dropping seed as they go actually have a really Large roll on effect in the ecosystem. So it's always really nice to reflect on the impact that individuals can have. So I love looking at the Southern Casperians and King. That's just one bird, but it has a really positive
0: impact in the ecosystem. The final bird with personality that Georgia is going to teach us about is the burrowing owl. Videos of this bird often appear on my Instagram feed, so I can't wait to hear more about it. Another favourite bird from the book is a bird
1: called the burrowing owl, which is found in Central America and they're quite small owls they look like quite classic owls but they divert from other owls in several kind of interesting ways um one of those being that they are actually diurnal so they're unlike other owls they actually are awake during the day rather than sort of creating their own nests they mostly live on the ground they're kind of terrestrial and they nest in the abandoned hollows of prairie dogs so It's just kind of interesting how you can see the echo of wherever there's an available spot, just like the woodpeckers leaving nesting hollows behind. The dogs will leave a burrow behind, and the burrowing owl just go, "Yep, I'm going to save a lot of energy on trying to find somewhere to nest instead. I'm just going to slip right in here, and we'll have our little colony of burrowing owls living underground." Which to me is something I can never get used to. Like spotted pardalotes here in Australia and bee eaters, they dig into the ground to nest um, in some cases. So I just think that's. Um, it's very surreal, but it goes to show that birds can really do anything and be anywhere, which <laughs> is part of their amazing character. And there's one other interesting thing about the burrowing owls, which is that they have a defense system, which is known as Batesian mimicry, which is something you see echoed in a lot of areas in nature. It's a form of mimicry where an animal will imitate an aspect of another creature as a way of defending themselves. And so the burrowing owls have learned to create a similar sound to the sound of a rattlesnake's tail. And so they create this rattling noise whenever their nest is potentially being threatened. And by creating that noise, they actively defend themselves. So I just think that's another ingenious way that these birds survive in a really harsh landscape. you know, in very traditional bird watching or even traditional ecology spheres, it may be um, a little bit frowned upon to anthropomorphize birds because you don't want to sort of project human needs on the needs of another species. But I do find at, you know, you know a kind of superficial level, it can be really helpful to appreciate the character of birds because it helps us distinguish species and it also helps us especially culturally appreciate birds. Like I certainly know that there's a group of a family of scrub scrumbrins that live in my backyard in this sort of hedge that we have between our place and our neighbours. I don't know how much I'm projecting, but I can't help but feel that there's an inherent sassiness and bold character to these little birds that just are so speedy, so chatty with one another, very gossipy, and they just love coming out to use the bird bath. And so I think for me, recognising the difference between those birds and maybe the much shyer brown thornbills that we see in our backyard as well, and then the extremely raucous rainbow lorikeets and then the boisterous and playful sulfur crested cockatoos that fly over and then the more like kind of the sentinels of the backyard as I like to call them the um, Australian magpies that are watching over everything and perpetually being grumps about other people being in their territory (laughs) like I just think being able to appreciate the strange diversity of personalities in Australian birds helps us appreciate and value them in a way that perhaps we might not the goal of the book I hope is bringing people a bit closer to birds in terms of empathy rather than distancing them. So, you know, I'd like for people to be able to recognise aspects of um, very performative singer-songwriters in Victoria's Riflebirds or, um, you know, industrious tailors in common tailor birds. So, you know, I I want people to be brought closer to the birds and feel like they can understand their actions a bit, how they relate to the ecosystem, and then really value them as important Parts of our world. Yeah,
0: I do think there's something important to valuing the really diverse characters of birds. The recording of The Burrowing Owl was by Manuel Grossolet in Mexico. George's commitment to sharing the diverse personality of birds and the other animals featured in her books is driven by her desire to spark people's curiosity about the world around them.
1: I guess I'm curious about the moment that I think a lot of us have, which is sort of that pivotal moment between not being an observer of birds and then being an observer of birds because I think noticing birds is really just the prelude to noticing a lot of the environment and appreciating your surrounds as they are in the present moment whether or not they're pristine you know that you're seeing the details and diversity of life I hope that by emphasizing the beauty of birds bit in their character or their appearance or the role that they play in an ecosystem you just get a few more people that maybe go oh you know what, I've actually never thought about that before, but it is kind of amazing that the lyrebird has such a big impact in this ecosystem or the woodpeckers do so much for the forest. In a very small way, I guess I hope that that curiosity just provokes people to go, oh, I'm actually just going to be a little bit more open to thinking about what's going on around me and appreciating my immediate surrounds. Yeah, my dad calls it my curiosity campaign, which I appreciate. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> but just trying to get people to um, be passionate and excited about what's immediately around them. Because I do feel like I'll be in conversation with people and wanting to grab them by the lapels and be like, look how amazing this bird is, but you can't. It's like taking a horse to water. You're just going to be like,
0: maybe you'll notice just how spectacular this bird is. Curiosity campaign. I love that expression and I'm 100% on board. I'm wondering if Georgia has a favourite bird watching spot that she likes going to, a place where she can watch and get inspired by the birds around her. Like many weekend birder guests, she says the answer to this question is their local area. In terms of places to go birdwatching,
1: you know, I have lots of little hotspots that I love to go to. But I, I do really like suggesting that people try and birdwatch in an area that's immediately available to them. As much as I love the idea of travelling You know, as I said, I was so lucky to go up to Cairns and see these amazing species. But to me, I think there's something so empowering about staying within your local area and learning it inside out, you know, and I've, I've still got so much to learn about even my local valley, but even just the little bits that I've learned along the way and realizing when something is a bit different from what I expected, appreciating those moments. So I think being able to walk around your local block and recognize different bird species, submit an ebird list if it's available to you and all write your own physical list and then suddenly when you do see a species that is a surprise it's a really lovely thing to appreciate I often um will see really familiar species on my morning walk but every now and again like the other morning I saw an Australian track thrush which I almost never see in this area and so to see that was so special and the other night I went outside onto my driveway to go and look at the stars because it was a clear night and I looked down the driveway and there was a powerful owl chick sitting on the kind of jungle gym that my neighbors have set up across the road. And I just was completely shocked. And this was an opportunity to talk to people about that because I was able to notify the powerful owl researchers and to talk to locals um, and realize that not only was it a powerful owl, it was a chick. So the breeding has been successful in this valley. So, yeah, that's a long winded way of me saying that. Learning your local surrounds is a really wonderful way to bring you back to the present and appreciate what's immediately around you.
0: I really value how Georgia helps us think about birds and birdwatching in different ways. You can support her by buying one or all three of her books 100 Australian Birds, 100 Australian Butterflies, Bees, Beetles, and Bugs, <laughs> and her new book, Birds with Personality, a guide to 50 of the world's most beguiling birds. Listeners like you have been writing in to say that they'd like to find out more about me. Thanks you guys. That's very sweet. So I'm going to write a short and personal letter each month delivered to your inbox. The letter will include a birdwatching story and any latest news. Plus every person who subscribes to the monthly letter will automatically be eligible for a giveaway. No other action required, no hoops to jump through. I'll announce the winners each month and this month I have four copies of Birds with Personality to give away. So head to weekendbirder.com and subscribe to stay connected. In the next episode, you're going to get an introduction to shorebirds from an awesome expert. Looking forward to speaking to you then.